Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. In this conversation, we continue our discussion about social media and adolescence. Recorded on April 25th, 2021, this episode is titled, The Social Dilemma, What Does It Mean for Kids? with Dr. Adriana Monago and Caroline Beaton, moderated by Sheena Brebig. Dr. Adriana Monago is an assistant professor in the psychology department at UC Santa Cruz. Caroline Beaton is a freelance writer and producer and the manager of Impact Operations at Exposure Labs. Our moderator, Sheena Brevig, is a CSS junior fellow and a filmmaker. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoy. So excited to have this in the children's tech and media room tonight. This is our very first Center for Scholars and Storytellers event. Uh, we're going to start out with a wonderful question and answer that Sheena will be moderating. And then we really want everyone in the audience, I'm sure we'll get some more people throughout the night, to come up and ask questions. The topic is around the social dilemma, of course, inspired by uh, the documentary, which is why we have Caroline here tonight. Um, but we really want to think about what does this mean for children? There's so many great topics around this, especially as we think about new social media platforms being created for kids, some kid-first creation, and some existing social media being kind of modified for kids. And uh, really important to think about what are the implications. So with that, I'll pass it over to Annie. Thank you so much, Colleen. Um, Hopefully this is going to be an exciting talk for everybody. I think our title tonight is uh, The Social Dilemma, What Does It Mean for Kids? And, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about on this subject. So we have some fantastic guests with us. Um, So I first want to introduce our moderator, Uh, Sheena Brevig, she's a CSS Junior Fellow. She's a social impact filmmaker with a background in neuroscience and works as a project manager for CSS. She's very passionate about using storytelling as advocacy for mental health and disability awareness, particularly in her LGBTQ plus and Asian communities. So welcome, Sheena. And then we have two fantastic guests with us. First, Dr. Adriana Monago. She's an assistant professor in the psychology department at UC Santa Cruz. Her research in the Culture and Tech Lab focuses on the proliferation of communication technologies, culture change, and social development during adolescence and the transition to adulthood. And then we have Caroline Beaton. Uh, She's a freelance writer and producer and the manager of impact operations at Exposure Labs, where she oversees the impact assessment of their campaigns and develops new tools, resources, and strategies to use film as a tool for change for young people in particular. Um, and Exposure Lab's latest film is The Social Dilemma, which is our topic of discussion this evening. So welcome all of you, and I will pass things over to Sheena to get us started. Thank you so much, Annie. Um, I am really excited to be a part of this conversation. Thank you all for being here. There's so much that we could ask and uh, cover, but to just jump right in, I'm gonna just start us off with a quick talking point and ask both of you, Um, So Dr. Uhls conducted a survey about the social dilemma with her digital media and human development class at UCLA. And the results showed that the dominant emotion evoked by the documentary was actually fear, but students' social media habits did not decrease right after watching the film. I would love to hear kind of how do you each interpret these results? 
Yeah, I mean, the results made perfect sense to me, given given the underlying way, honestly, the way in which like human thinking, the nature of human thinking was displayed and portrayed. It was very dramatic in the film. It was very exaggerated. And there were lots of terms like that, you know, we are zombies and we're clueless. And there were so many ways of portraying human thinking. It, you know, I, I thought about it in terms of, it seems that it would kind of harken back to old behaviorist ways of thinking about human psychology and human functioning as if we're just kind of these automatons responding to reinforcements and punishments and not to say that you know we don't respond to reinforcements and punishments but we also are creative in the way that we think and the way that the film portrayed you know the the adolescents for example is like they were automatons or marionettes being manipulated by these algorithms and interestingly the like the algorithms were anthropomorphized there are these like humans that were thinking and, and they were representing the algorithms and then the kids the people there was like an extraction of humanity from their human thinking and feeling and so I could imagine that if you watch that, you would feel very disempowered. Like, I, who am I to stand up against these machines, these machines, these algorithms? It's magic. They're overwhelming us. They're overtaking us. What can we do? So that first was really striking to me. But I guess second, I also think is a really important thing to raise is that the, the film raised a really important systemic issue, uh, something that is not just about technology, but about how the society functions, about capitalism, about power inequalities, and so forth. And then by the end of the film, you're asking people to, make an, to take an individual action to address a systemic issue. And so, yeah, it makes sense that they're not going to be able to take this individualized action in a broader social system that is pressuring them and pushing them and, and structured in such a way that that is almost impossible, right? right? Like cutting yourself off from technology is in many ways for today's youth, cutting themselves off from their relationships. So we could talk more about that, but those are big, two big things I wanted to bring up in terms of more critical <laughs> assessments of the film. And so when I saw those results from Yalda Ull's study, I just thought, oh my gosh, this fits perfectly with what I felt and what I thought when I was watching the film. That's really fascinating. Thank you. Caroline, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and really appreciate those insights, Adriana. And also just want to say thanks so much for having me on this Clubhouse panel. This is my first time on Clubhouse as well. And it's such a relief to not be on Zoom, frankly. And also Clubhouse is doing some great things in terms of formulating a more ethical business model. So I think it's great to support them. Um, but to your question specifically, Sheena, those, that result really did stand out to our team as well. It wasn't just that screen time didn't decrease. It actually increased by 26% after students watched the film. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. But first, just wanted to offer a few caveats. The first is that there were only a couple of days between the pre-screening and post-screening survey. So it is possible that that rise was due to some kind of fluke, like something happening in the news, which is happening every other day these days. Um, and then also the screen time didn't decrease. The film did seem to have an effect on students. Uh, for example, more than half of students voluntarily discussed the film with their friends or family. Another more than half said that it changed their perspective on social media and search technologies. And a smaller percentage, about 38%, said that it changed how they interacted with their phone and or social media after watching. And we also don't know that their emotional reaction was the reason for their screen time increase. But if that is true, you know, if, if fear was contributing to their actions or rather lack thereof after watching the film, I agree with Adriana that that makes a lot of sense. Previous research from Dr. Uhls that Sheena has drawn my attention to suggests that fear is a less powerful motivator than hope. 
and if though fear can get eyeballs and can pique people's interest, it's not as strongly associated with concrete actions post viewing. And part of that, as Adriana mentioned, is self-efficacy. You know, if you believe that this issue that you just watched is totally out of your control, you're less likely to take a lead on, on trying to change it. Um, and then another thing that could be going on, which we actually verified anecdotally by one of CSS's research assistants who was involved in this survey, is that the fear really stoked this anxiety and students went on social media to try to soothe their anxiety because that, that's how they have learned to, to cope. So I, I do think that that's a realistic conclusion. But anyway, really interesting insights for our team to take into consideration, especially as we are trying to think about the most effective ways to engage youth and incite change as part of our impact campaign in the next couple of years. Thank you both so much. Um, Adriana, I'd love to know. So from my understanding, as Caroline mentioned, there is um, research that shows that hope is more kind of motivating for people mm -hmm. to make changes and whatnot. I would love to hear, I don't know if you have any insight on that. Yeah, I mean, she brings up uh, self-efficacy, which has been sort of um, the important sort of concept in thinking about this. So if you are doing a task that, that's too hard, that's like very far outside of your competency level or what you're able to accomplish with the tools and that you have, over time, if you continue to not make any kinds of improvements or you're, you're giving up, it's, it's all kind of a learned helplessness. And so and self-efficacy is such an important part of adolescent health and development, not just in terms of, you know, making change in society, but just also in their own lives. So there's been a lot of research around kinds of things contribute to self-efficacy, um, certain kinds of theories of intelligence. You know, for example, if you believe that intelligence is all or nothing, um, either you're born with it or you don't have it, either it's like a genetic contribution, um, you're less likely to feel, you know, self-efficacy. If you believe that intelligence is something that you can develop and learn over time, these are kind of beliefs and ideologies about what intelligence is that promotes self-efficacy. So yeah, so I, I do think there is something around, you know, I think self yeah, it's an important uh, thing to think about when we're thinking about technology and, you know, how we're framing that. And I think sometimes we can frame adolescents as they have these their you know, immature brains and they're risk takers and they can't control their impulses and i think we have to although there is some science some interesting neuroscience that does suggest you know protracted brain development into early 20s i think we also have to be careful about the kind of narratives that we tell children and adolescents about what they're capable of and because you know there's a lot of cross-cultural differences as well of what adolescents are capable of and i don't think we have a good handle on you know the kinds of tools perhaps it's just a certain kinds of tools whether that might be educational tools, materials, or technological tools that adolescents could use to feel more self-efficacious, for example. Thank you. Yeah, no, that that's, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Caroline, did you want to comment on that? Or I, I couldn't tell if you were speaking. Um, no, I think Adriana just summed it up really nicely. Definitely agree. Okay, perfect. I, I actually have a question for you, Caroline. As a storyteller in social impact space, and you know, having been worked, having worked on the social dilemma, how do you feel about increasing activism amongst adolescents when that's largely facilitated through social media? Yeah, I think that that is such a good question. And also, just want to say, you know, Gen Z is more racially diverse, educated, and politically active than any previous generation. There's also 68 million of them in the U.S. alone, and they use social media to develop their identities and speak up and speak out for. Uh, people, whether it's their own generation or uh, people who are less fortunate than them um, and, and many others. And so I, I think that our team has viewed that as a very positive development, you know, and, 
And even though our, our film highlighted some of the negative consequences of extractive technology, we believe that there's a lot of good coming out of social media. And Gen Z activism is one of those things. Uh, and we're trying to actually elevate Gen Z activists and creators as part of our campaign. So most broadly for our youth engagement campaign for the film, we're trying to educate young people inside the classroom. So that's developing and distributing resources with our partners. And then we're trying to activate young people outside the classroom and really by creating grant opportunities and other leadership opportunities to support youth-led solutions. Um, one thing that I actually saw from CSS is that young people are more likely to listen to each other about COVID information rather than listening to parents or experts. And we think the same exact thing is true of social media and tech. You know, young people want to hear from other young people on the effects of technology in their lives and what we can all do to change it. So we really want to be uplifting this generation. And, and also uh, pretty fundamental to our approach is that we don't want to be treating Gen Z as victims. I think there's a lot of literature out there that one suggests, you know, by calling people victims that, or, or disadvantaged, we are lessening their own ability and, and sense of control over their circumstances. Um, and, and then two, we just really want to uh, um, be empowering th this generation to, uh, you know, to make a difference. So um, that, that, yeah, that's a little bit about our approach. And we do have a, a social media ethics policy that is listed on our website. That includes not advertising, but I, I don't think that Gen Z are really thinking about advertising. I think they're more in grassroots activism, which is something that we want to support. Yes, definitely. I think that I'm also familiar with that research of just how diverse and kind of vocal Gen Z is. And it really is inspiring as someone who's just above that. Um, um, Adriana, so mm -hmm. since you study how adolescents develop their identities through modern communication technologies, you know, what does access to social media mean for Gen Z young people, especially those from marginalized communities, such as those who are neurodiverse, disabled, or belonging to the LGBTQ plus communities? Yeah, I'm a, sort of the theoretical framework that I follow is that um, technology sort of enhances both connection as well as uh, personal agency in many ways. And so some of my research, for example, has um, suggested, you know, self-expression is really central for um, in, in, for U.S. adolescents anyway, for to, you know, sort of explore and experiment and, and feed, get feedback online and kind of figure out who they are and what they believe. And it's an active, you know, decision-making process that involves both personal expression and to some degree like conformity to norms or to, you know, socially constructed norms with their peers that are living up to ideals that are in, that are circulating in their peer, peer group. But they may also be challenging norms as well. So um, we do have a recent study with LGBTQ youth who uh, we've did these sort of like digital tours with them. So they're kind of like a go along tour and they walked us through their different social media platforms. And one of the qualitative analysis we've been doing is looking at how they're negotiating master narratives for gender and sexuality. So I think, you know, nuanced, complex approaches to understanding technology is not all good and not all bad. They're both, you know, conduits of maybe oppressive master, master narratives around gender and sexuality, but the social media also gives rise to new kinds of voices and to contest and, you know, create new kinds of labels and um, identities. Of course, we know that for LGBTQ youth, social media can be a really um, critical place to create community. 
um, to find a sense of belonging, to find a sense of um, identity confirmation that, you know, there may not be people like me in my physical environment at school, if I'm in a more rural environment, for example, or maybe an ethnic minority in my school. Um, social media can be a tremendous, yeah, boon to community building, especially for marginalized groups in their physical environments. Um, thank you. I, I'm sorry if my, my audio cut out for a second, so I'm not sure oh. if I caught this, but um, could you just describe what is a master narrative? You, you mentioned that. Uh, oh yeah, sure. So narratives are, so a master narrative are like dominant or very widespread and commonly, they're so common and, and so widespread that they seem to be natural. And these narratives tell us about their cultural um, beliefs and values that tell us about how, what a good life looks like. So a master narrative for gender, maybe something like, you know, for women, they go to, women go to call, you know, very kind of like a heteronormative master narrative around gender and sexuality, be like, you know, that women, um, you know, go to college and then find the love of their life. And then, um, you know, you have children and there's certain uh, sequence of events that happen um, around gender roles, you know, traditional gender roles of um, nurturing, but in contemporary times, those master narratives have also shifted so that women are both, you know, working, but also um, having families. But these are sort of ideals that even if we, when we're diverging from these ideals, we have to explain ourselves is sort of the idea. So if you diverge from the master narrative um, for, you know, going to college, getting a job, getting married and having kids, you have to explain why you're diverging from that. And so it's a different kind of identity process for those who don't conform to dominant ideologies. They may contest it, they may um, speak back to it, but they're always like referring to it. So it's the master narrative is present even for those who may not subscribe to it. Thank you so much. That was yeah. so fascinating. And I, I didn't know that that was a phrase to describe mm -hmm. that, but I, that made a lot of sense. And it makes me think about all the master narratives I've had to kind of stray from and, and yeah. you know, kind of fight for. Hi, listeners. We hope that you are enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. The Center for Scholars and Storytellers is an organization dedicated to bridging the gap between scholars and storytellers to promote positive youth development. Are you interested in learning more about the other projects we are working on? Check out our website at scholarsandstorytellers.com and find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Scholars and Storytellers. Now, back to the conversation. On kind of a, a more fun note for, for both of you, so in The Social Dilemma, there's a narrative kind of dramatized, fictionalized storyline, and the two kids struggle to stay off their phones, and the mom locks the phones in a box and the daughter in particular, she puts on these goggles and smashes the box open with a hammer to get at her phone. Do you think you guys could stay off your phone for 24 hours? And if not, what notification would compel you to get back on your phone? Yeah, I, I love it. Also just want to say, you know, I think that that scene is obviously an exaggeration, but I don't know who said it, but comedy, all comedy is exaggeration. And I think that uh, in having that sort of comedic relief in the film, we were trying to get at the underlying truth of something. And in the fact is that many kids and, and parents alike are, are unhealthily hooked to their phones. And most of us are doing much less about it, actually, than quarantining our phones in a kitchen safe. But in, in terms of your question on whether I could stay off my phone for 24 hours, I think that's a really good one. And certainly I've done it, you know, in, in outdoor pursuits and adventures, but it's hard to do when you're glued to, you know, your job and, and a tech uh, fueled life. 
But I will say that I've turned off basically every notification there is except for text messages and Zillow new home alerts because <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of shopping for houses, even though I don't need a new one. Um, but I, I hate texting, so I don't think that that would bring me back. But a really cool house might get me back on my phone. But I actually had a question for Dr. Monago, too. So maybe you can answer both of uh, Sheena's and my Dr. Monago. But I'm just curious, since you study social media and identity formation do you think what happened to ben is realistic or confirmed by your research in terms of you know finding an online community and then having that conform having that conform your beliefs and get you rabbit holed into increasingly radical reality Mm, yeah, really great question. Yeah. Um, like, which one should I answer first? Okay, what uh, I think I would have wouldn't have trouble as long as I, I wouldn't have trouble getting off of getting away from my phone. I think as long as I got to be in nature, and I was, you know, had re- was replacing it with something else. That was what was interesting about the film too, right with Ben. Um, he was just like in his room alone. He didn't replace the phone with a, any kind of other activity. And that might be a useful thing mm-hmm. to think about, right? It's like, don't think of a pink elephant. Um, you're going to think of a pink elephant. But if you, um, you know, reorient yourself to something else that's fun and different and uh, enjoyable, then it, um, it's a lot easier. <laughs> and then what would get me back onto my phone? Um, I have been, um, I have, I was, a, <laughs> this is my, yeah, my, I've become a gym nerd, a gymnastics nerd. So I used to be a gymnast growing up and I have really enjoyed social media for like following gymnastics. So it's sort of like a niche sport that not a lot of people, it's not often on like mainstream television. So that would bring me back like the Olympics or something, uh, some gymnastics event that I want to hear all about. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, in terms of your question about Ben and like what that has that his experience, whether it's realistic, you know, I know like, you know, for a, a film, you don't have a long time to kind of play it all out. There's a lot that you were trying to address in the film. But I think, you know, it would be something that would play out more long term. I think one of the things that the film sort of gets wrong as, as well from my perspective, again, is like, you know, as somebody who is, a, you know, I study developmental psychology, we spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of human thinking. <laughs> and, you know, we aren't just responding again to reinforcements. And we, we think, we, we interpret, we make plans, we have future goals, we meet, make meaning out of our experiences. And so none of that was really there for Ben. Like what I would imagine for for something, something, his trajectory, it might be something like he would first, there would be some kind of like, we bring to the table, our beliefs and values, proclivities, personality traits, whatever it might be. So what, like, what led Ben, for example, to those communities in the first place, I think as a psychologist, that's something that I'm interested in, because I don't see technology as like determining human behavior, but rather a transactional process between adolescents, you know, developing sense of selves, what they're looking looking for information, they're looking for confirmation, they're looking for answers, they're exploring who they are, they're trying things out. And so it might happen like more subtly, perhaps on like a discord or something that they're, you know, maybe they're playing, I think we don't have enough information about boys, um, young boys, especially early adolescents, their relationships online. But yeah, I think like it might start in a you know, on a discord or something and the way that, you know, hegemonic masculinity might play out and the way that they're vying for domination. Uh, and then some, you know, then media gets integrated in that, or, you know, you're developing a certain worldview or a certain predisposition that's interested in, you know, hegemon, I can talk about a little bit about hegemonic masculinity, but this idea of, you know, invulnerability and stoicism and domination and, and physical strength and all of these things. 
um, I have some recent research, we're looking at uh, this ideology and how it does motivate certain forms of media use, um, particularly a, a kind of competitive activity bonding is what we labeled it, but a form of social media use that's about like, yeah, it may involve gaming, it may just be about like verbal sparring, but it's not just like emotion bonding um, the way that we often study social media. Um, we also found that hegemonic masculinity ideologies motivated uh, self-objectification online, which was really intriguing. So there's certain kinds of values and beliefs and ideologies. You know, hegemonic masculinity is something that has a long history in our patriarchal cultures. So it's not something new, but it's something that may brought, might be brought to bear with these technological tools that then may lead to, you start to look for information that confirms your prior beliefs, that confirms your ideology, you may be drawn to certain kinds of worldviews that are about dominating, for example, and then you get sucked down that rabbit hole on YouTube um, and maybe, yes, continue to look for community in, in that way. Adriana, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, fantastic information there. And it makes me think, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, masculinity and the nature of masculinity. And mm. um, it makes me think about our, our work in the masculinity space at CSS. We have our boys tip sheet and that's aimed at having uh, content creators really think a little bit more deeply about how they're portraying boys and men on the screen. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, something I just want to mention for our audience here today. But I just quickly want to, for our new people who have joined us since you guys have been speaking, uh, just to remind everybody that we have Sheena Brevig with us, who is uh, a CSS Junior Fellow. She's our fantastic moderator today. We are speaking with Dr. Uh, Adriana Monago, who is an assistant professor in the psychology department at UC Santa Cruz. And we have Caroline Beaton, who is the manager of impact operations at Exposure Labs. Thank you all so much for uh, this fantastic conversation thus far. I'm gonna turn it back over to Sheena so we can start getting the audience involved with some questions. Thank you so much. And yes, I would love to open it up if you want to raise your hand and ask questions. This is, you know, safe space. We can ask all the questions anybody looking to share or if you would like to even share with us like could you stay off your phone for 24 hours and what would prompt you to come back to it and um, this is Colleen here I just I think it's so interesting thinking about the first question and the study of how kids you know were on their phones even more after watching it I, I think it's in part because you know the phone is where they get their connection because when I think about like staying off my phone for 24 hours I think well am I who am I with you know, if I'm with the people that I have that connection mm -hmm. with, and for so many, you know, teens and whatnot, their phone is their source of connection to those people. So even if they were scared by it and ha were feared, uh, fearful about it, like they would want to discuss it with their friends on social media, most likely. So it's kind of just a, um, a catch 22 there. But um, yeah, I see we have some up here for our, uh, our first question. I'd love to hear what you have to say. And please introduce yourself. Sure. Hey, folks. Uh, my name is Vignesh. I work as a software engineer at Facebook, and I'm like really interested in figuring out how to design the future of uh, healthier social media. And as it pertains to kids, the broader question on my mind is like, how do we strike a balance between social media allowing for people to find community and find like people that they connect with uh, outside of their neighborhood or school uh, versus like addicting them to their phones 
Um, so that is kind of the broader question that I have on my mind. Would love to hear thoughts. And then the second kind of more tactical question I had was uh, in the work that y'all have done to understand phone addiction. Um, is that mostly like an urban phenomena, a suburban phenomena, or a rural phenomena? Like how does how does that split across the different like urban, suburban, rural populations? say with regards to the US. So that's like one of those database question I had on my mind. Yeah, I'll go for it. Um, I don't know, I don't know if Caroline has some more information, but I don't know if I've ever seen any studies that have looked at addiction, you know, in rural versus urban populations, but maybe, I mean, I think it's also important to say here that most adolescents use social media, use their mobile phones to augment their offline relationships. And those, we, we, there we see a lot of really positive um, effects. So they're able to maintain ongoing connection, their social support, um, you know, and, and yeah, ongoing connection and closeness with their friends. And that kind of thing is, is, a, is a good thing. You know, we want to promote that, whether it's, you know, sharing photos with Snapchat, it's promoting a kind of intimacy that I think is, yeah, is, is positive for adolescents' um, development. Where it leads into addiction, I think... You know, others have said this as well, and it kind of harkens back to what Caroline was saying, is I think we have to be careful when we use victim language or if we're going to pathologize technology use as well, I think goes hand in hand with sort of that idea of, you know, um, you know, yeah, I think like jumping in, it it can easily lead to sort of a moral panic and how much is too much and how, what, you know, how many hours per day is good or not good. Well, it's going to vary. There's a lot of individual differences, but I think the important thing is, you know, balance, making sure that there's a rhythm of life. There's time for schoolwork and there's time to hang out with friends face to face and doing activities and doing sports and, you know, extracurricular activities. There's been a lot of research on the positive physical and cognitive and social emotional benefits of, you know, after school activities, getting kids passionate about something, using social media for something. Um, Another study that a student I recently published, we were looking at, you know, what motivated young people's mass personal communication. So one to many forms of communication, you know, status updates and tweets and so forth. And a lot of the literature was had been focused on self motive, self kinds of factors, motivating factors like narcissism or uh, self-expression. Is, uh, yeah. But we also found that there was a lot of pro-social values um, in their decision making about what was, you know, what what is appropriate to post. They were thinking about like making an impact or, you know, standing up for social issues. Um, yeah. So I think that, yeah, like, you know, helping youth find um, what they're passionate about is something that's always existed. That's always something that's been important um, before technology and helping them use technology to, to live out those passions, to stand up for what they believe in, to find out more information about what they're curious about. I think it's a good step in like not thinking so much about not making them addicted or something, but getting them engaged in something, getting them passionate about something. I love that approach, Adriana. And it kind of reminds me of the pink elephant thing too. Like instead of saying, don't do this, don't do this, which instead can sometimes have the opposite effect. We try to encourage people to, you know, go after their passions, do something positive and affirmatory instead. Uh, But Vignesh, thank you so much for your question. And to respond to it from my end, I think that social media can be used intentionally to create 
a broader worldview, which we see from many members of Gen Z especially. But I, I think that it's more likely statistically to be used unconsciously as a mind narrowing tool, where we increasingly see information that we agree with and that confirms our worst possible views of different people and beliefs. And, and you might be familiar with this stat from Facebook's internal research, but they found a couple of years ago that 60% of people in extremist groups on Facebook joined because of Facebook's own algorithm. So I think that there's a degree of, of positive choice people can make about what they are ingesting and consuming in terms of information. But it's sort of a, a losing battle when you've got these powerful algorithms who are constantly trying to rabbit hole you to get you to spend more time on the platform. Um, but but in terms of how we can fight back, you know, Tristan Harris um, in the film talks about using technology as a tool. And we encourage our audience to ask, like, are you using this platform or technology or is it using you? And I think one great way to ensure that it's not using you is to not follow people or pages so your newsfeed is basically irrelevant. That's been my trick and it totally works. So I'm still on social media, but I don't really have an interesting newsfeed. So I don't find myself sucked into stuff that it is really interesting, engaging or outraging. And instead I'm actively searching for people or pages. And I think that this could be created um, you know, more formally in terms of design and regulatory changes as well. So we could eliminate algorithms that gather information from you in order to feed you more personalized and engaging content, and instead refer return to more of a chronological newsfeed or a hybrid where people are selecting their own interests rather than having their interests predicted by an algorithm that doesn't really have their well-being in mind. Thank you so much for that question. Both of your answers. That was really fascinating. Did you want to add to that, Vignesh? Uh, no, I just wanted to thank um, both Adrian and Carolyn for sharing their perspectives. From what I can send, that kind of interest-based feed is likely, like consciously chosen interest-based feed is likely where things are going to evolve to. Uh, because of the uh, higher emphasis on Facebook groups in in like the recent couple of years or so, so it's I I imagine it's gonna move further and further away from the friend graph, like groups graph, and groups are are basically conscious interest choices. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> hope so. Thank you, Vignesh. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us and share it with your friends. Your support is greatly appreciated. This conversation happened on Clubhouse. You can join our future Clubhouse events hosted by the Children's Tech and Media Club on the last Sunday of each month at 5 p.m. Pacific. Now, back to the conversation. I see we have Noelle. Would you like to ask your question? Hi, it's very nice to meet you, Sheena, um, Adriana, and Caroline. One of my questions, I am currently a third grade teacher, and I work with elementary age kids, but particularly um, with kids that are around eight and nine, and I've seen how they're so drawn to their digital and technological world, and I'm really curious what you guys believe or what you might think make a responsible uh, digital citizen, I guess, um, when it comes to really young children, because in my experience, especially in this past year, um, I've seen kids and parents and also teachers kind of struggle with um, where, where do we kind of build those skills? Like, how do we build those skills? 
and responsibilities um, because like you were saying and like the film says like there's just so many um, great things that can come out of it and um, that's just one of the things that I noticed um, in my own interactions with kids and also on social media that is interesting to me and, and where the movement of that is. Um, so just just to make sure that I've got your question right, are, are you specifically interested in how we can help eight to nine year olds be better digital citizens? And, and with digital citizens, are you referring to like media literacy? Because there there are many facets to the social dilemma for youth. You know, I think one is like screen time and addiction. Another is uh, like misinformation and news oh, literacy. Yeah. OK, I'm sorry. I'll specify. Thank you for your question. Um, I think I'm talking more specifically about how they engage online. So in terms of communication with one another or um, interaction with content, like commenting on things um, and I guess even like browsing of like knowing what is safe and maybe what what might not be. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I don't think that I really have expertise on that. Um, maybe I'll, I'll let Adriana jump in. Yeah, interesting. It is a, it's a great question. I, mean, I feel like it's like the million dollar question too with a, a lot of parents. And I keep coming back to um, sort of what we know even before technology, like social and emotional learning skills that um, we develop that translate into online environments. Um, so things like self-regulation and empathy and using your words to um, express yourself um, that are all part of sort of social emotional learning in elementary school. But I think in addition, like with technology, maybe um, another piece of advice, you know, there's, you know, co-viewing and, and parental mediation of television for a long time has shown like the importance of parental mediation. So you're sort of scaffolding your child into this new terrain um, and you're doing it together and maybe modeling um, behaviors, modeling privacy behaviors. You know, for example, we often think about, you know, privacy issues in terms of corporate surveillance. I know we've been thinking a lot about that, but there's also ways in which like interpersonally we can model good privacy behaviors for young children, you know, um, you know, even just like asking, you know, you know, showing respect for your child's, you know, own boundaries, for example, are good ways to kind of set the stage, set the foundation. Because I do think you're, you're bringing in an important point that social and emotional learning, many of these like basic skills <laughs> that we're learning in elementary school about how to treat others and, you know, how to apologize, how to make up after some tension, for example, all of those things are, I think, brought into social media platforms and can be amplified. So I think, um, yeah, doing, you know, thinking more about parental mediation and modeling and talking with your children about what they're seeing and helping them interpret and make meaning out of, say, a social exchange that they've had online and, um, you know, doing a lot of, yeah, talking with your children and, and, and not just monitoring, but like co-participating together is what I would advise. Yeah. Thanks for a great question. Yeah, thank you. That was super helpful. I love what you were saying about the idea of co-participating and also modeling. So the kids are really seeing um, what that looks like then to how to respond or um, how they might engage. Because I think sometimes that whole idea of just monitoring can come across like the, like the power dynamics are um, end up playing a role and then kids feel more like it's, oh, am I going to get in trouble versus um, let me learn how to actually do this and make mistakes along the way. But the adult that I trust um, is going to go through this with me. Thank you so much. Zach, would you like to um, unmute and speak? 
Yeah, this has been a really incredible conversation, and I just want to thank all of the speakers here today, including Sheena, who I get to work with and I'm very lucky to work with. I, I was wondering um, your guys' take on some of the, like, what I would almost call social media in disguise, such as Roblox, especially, which is that's so prominent in young children. And I think many parents don't necessarily see it purely as a social media platform, but rather see it as a game or something that their child can do alone, when in reality, they can be talking to friends online, they can be interacting with people and strangers and viewing content that may not be wholly appropriate. So do you think that kind of, Obviously, you know, uh, the social dilemma was a little bit more focused on stuff that are, you know, teen oriented and, and much more prominent, uh, you know, more social media in terms of networking than necessarily game playing. So I'm wondering what the panelists have to say about something that, again, maybe comes off as a game, but really underneath is still a, like follows the social media model. Yeah, that's a great question. And I do think so much of the detriment of social media platforms depends on how we're using them. So for a long time, social psychologists were just referring to screen time broadly, you know, as if that could encompass both social media and gaming and looking up recipes and FaceTiming with your grandma, that kind of thing. And I think increasingly, uh, from, from my observation, they're starting to really narrow in on what kinds of screen time seem to be detrimental. And uh, as a team, we try to be really careful about like what detrimental actually looks like. You know, I don't think that there are there's enough research currently on causal correlations between social media and gaming and depression and anxiety at large. But I think that we do see a pretty strong associations between uh, spending a lot of time on social media and a feeling of like loneliness or, or certain other emotions. And I think there's more research needed on that. But I, I would be interested in Adriana's take on gaming in particular and, and whether she has seen that in her own research as uh, positive in, in development and identity formation and, and culture forming or whether it can be the same kind of um, negative time suck that social media mm. can be. Mm. Yeah, I'm really interested in this as well. I've been um, trying to also move away from just simple frequency of use measures and trying to get more specific and precise about, yeah, different form because, you know, you could get to many different levels of granularity, at, like what is the appropriate one? You know, everybody is different. Everybody's using social media in slightly different ways, but then what might be some common purposes is what I've been sort of my approach has been uh, lately. Um, and so one of those common purposes is, yeah, I think I mentioned it earlier, so this idea of like competitive activity bonding, because usually when we study social media, we're thinking about friendship bonding and sharing emotions or sharing support. Um, and I think this is a very understudied form of social media use. And I think you're right, Zach, to bring it up in that I think it's increasingly dovetailing. And I think we're going to see uh, it become more and more popular or it seems to be growing in that direction. And I don't know if I would say, you know, good or bad. I think so offline developmental research, it's often very gendered. Um, so, but I, you know, not to be gender binary about it, but yeah, offline research has shown that you know, boys tend to bond. They uh, feel closer to their friends through more competitive kinds of activities. Um, yeah, such as sports. And so I think it is another way of bonding that isn't necessarily good or bad, but may involve a different set of beliefs and values. And this is why I've been interested in thinking about um, 
yeah, like hegemonic masculinity values and how that, uh, and so some, yeah, research that we're working on publishing right now just shows a correlation. So it's not causation, but that these, that when you have beliefs and values for relationships um, that are more about being invulnerable and, you know, showing domination, showing, uh, yeah, kind of that com- competitiveness that you're, that's might drive your selection of certain kinds of social media platforms that allow that to happen. And then I think it's still, yeah, you know, yet to be determined. I, I think Caroline's right about being a little bit cautious about interpreting, you know, associations between video gaming. I think there is some, you know, small associations, but I think a lot of it just depends and it depends on like, is it replacing, you know, face-to-face interaction um, I think it, we're often, often talk, we're talking about like, it's more often at these extreme ends that I think we need to be, um, more concerned about rather than maybe just normative use of, you know, playing games with your friends. But I guess if you're thinking about it also in terms of earlier in development, I still kind of, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, elementary school children or, you know, uh, even preteens to some extent, I think, you know, having that parental monitoring and really being aware of the kinds of conversations that are happening, what are the ways that they're connecting? I don't think we have a lot of good research on, you know, what are, how are peers socializing each other in these different contexts? And then there might be certain kinds of more hegemonic masculine kinds of values that get transmitted among peers if they're in a more competitive kind of environment. But I think that's really, you know, speculative, and we'd have to be really you know, we'd have to really get a good sense of, you know, what's happening in those spaces and how peers are socializing each other. Amazing. I actually have a question that uh, piggybacks off Zach's there about younger kids and, and different platforms. You know, I mentioned at the top that there's a lot of uh, new platforms coming out that are uh, specifically designed for kids. We also have uh larger social media platforms such as you know Facebook created Messenger for Kids and we have Instagram brewing up something now. Um, and then of course, you know, an, a great example is uh, Zigazoo uh, of something that uh, was designed for kids from the get-go. Um, and I'm just very curious if the two of you are familiar or any on the stage here is familiar with Zigazoo. I invited the uh, founder of this tonight, but um, from the Facebook uh, children and media, media professionals page was hoping he could come to speak about it but would love to hear what you all think about that if you're familiar with it there's recently a big article on it is this you know a safe social media for kids is there such a thing as safe social media for kids i can say that something that i struggle with from a as a development, development psychologist is the idea of kids drawing you know uh, too much meaning from how many likes they get from things, you know, like, what does that mean then if they don't get as many likes on something, what does it mean for someone who didn't get as many likes as so-and-so? And we really want to encourage kids to create their own intrinsic motivation and, and validation and, and not rely on that from other people because that can have really uh, detrimental effects. And so I still, you know, I see that in Zikazoo still. It's how many how many likes did you get? And so, yeah, I'm just curious what you all think about that. I'm not that familiar with Zikazoo, so I'll let Caroline um, speak on it. But um, I guess I, I would still say one thing, though, is that I, it doesn't have like, yeah, like the like situation. I think it could also be an opportunity for dialogue with your child, just like sometimes your child might hit somebody else. And, and, and that's an opportunity for a dialogue about um, what is it? you know, what happened and how do you think that made, makes the other child feel? So again, kind of going back, even with young children, you know, simplifying the language and trying to put it into concrete terms. Um, 
is, you know, also an important thing to think about in terms of parental mediation. And, and certainly with young children, parents do need to be really quite involved to, to understand what their children are being exposed to. Yeah. And I'm also not familiar with Zigazoo, but I will say, you know, for anyone who's seen The Social Dilemma, I think one of the more powerful moments is when Tim Kendall, uh, president of former president of Pinterest and others in the film say they basically don't let their children spend any time at all on, on social media or on their phones generally. And, and you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs have, had, have said the same thing uh, regarding their children. And I think that you also see lots of tech executives enrolling their students in schools like Waldorf, uh, for example, which in, in San Francisco, um, that branch, they don't allow screen time at all for children under age 14. So, uh, you know, I was just mentioning that, that we need to be adding more of a distinction between how we're using screens because, because that does have different effects. But I think when we're talking about really young children, you know, I, I personally am of the, the belief that they need to be out in their physical environment and working with their hands and, and just learning from each other in an in-person setting. I, I think maybe that's perceived by some as, as old school and maybe I'll revise my opinions on it, but I don't think the tech executives have. So that's sort of illuminating to me. Adriana, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, in many ways agree with what Caroline is saying. It's just the, you know, the face-to-face -face kinds of experiences that children are having with each other or others is, are, is so rich. The, um, you know, amount of information that's conveyed by the eyes and facial expressions, and there's so much social-emotional learning. Um, absolutely, face-to-face -face time is the ideal, being out in nature. I know there's one of my colleagues used to do some really interesting research around um, even like playgrounds. If playgrounds were sort of um, the way we've designed them, they're kind of, you know, all right angles and all perfectly, you know, geometric sizes, um, those kinds of playgrounds versus they've done these experimental designs with like kids on like trees and climbing trees and kind of the unpredictability of the environment is better, it seems, for their cognitive development and their physical balance and so forth. They're doing more problem solving. So I think um, that really harkens back to what Caroline is saying. There is something about a rich unpredictable world um, versus one that's like digitized um, that isn't going to be as rich for children's development. But I also guess I just hedge a little bit in the sense that I think, you know, 20 minutes a day or something with a social media isn't going to, you know, kill your child, isn't going to, mm -hmm. um, you know, ruin your child's cognitive development. Um, so, yeah, and I, I guess I also empathize with parents and, you know, trying to juggle a million different things. If you could get, you know, if you need that 20 minutes, that might be better for that, you know, parent to be able to come back and like be able to be present with the child, for example. Thank you both so much. Yeah, I also recently saw uh, an article that was published that commented on the, you know, the fear parents have that toddlers watching screens, you know, increases their chance of getting, of developing ADHD or something like that. And it was kind of debunking that, I believe. And so, you know, it, especially in COVID times, I think it's, you know, it means a lot to a lot of parents to hear that it's okay yeah. to add a little more screen time here and there, especially if it, like you said, does mean they get to show up more present for their child. Um, I believe we are just about at time. Just to kind of wrap up here, though, uh, I would love to hear if 
I don't know if either of you have children, but um, do you have any practices around kind of mediating phone use either with your own children or with yourself, since we know kids learn so much from kind of how the adults model behaviors around them? Also for myself, I'm curious, Caroline and Adriana, you know, do you have, you both mentioned kind of going out into nature and things like that. But I was curious, you know, some people I know turn off their phone at 8 p.m. or things like that. Um, And I, I was curious if either of you had any practices. Yeah, I love this. I think I shared my main practice earlier, which is just make your feed less interesting. Like you you could even follow things that you find really uninteresting. Like I could I could be following NASCAR or whatever and like I'm just not interested <laughs> in NASCAR. And so then when I when I'm logging on to Instagram or Facebook, I I'm like, "Oh, this is boring. I don't I don't want this." And so then you don't see something that entices you in. So I think that can be a really powerful practice. And the other thing that I do is my phone is on airplane mode basically from from like 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. And sometimes actually I realize that I have forgotten to turn my phone off of airplane mode all day and I'll, I will have missed calls and stuff, but usually I'm kind of patting myself on the back when that happens. I really relate to that when I've missed a few emails that I would have previously thought were so important and then I get to them the next day and it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Adriana? <laughs> Yeah, same. I uh, turn my phone off uh, during the workday. Um, so I, yeah, I'm not distracted. Um, and I, I also, I think for me, it's like also about like having a rhythm of a, like a daily practice of like, you know, morning time is for working out. And then, um, you know, I, I write in the morning and I tend to teach in the afternoon or just having like a, a rhythm that you kind of get into and so that you feel strange if you didn't work out that day or if you didn't get some nature time that day. Yeah, I would say that that has been my my approach. <laughs> so yeah, Caroline, I think I mentioned you basically turned off all your notifications. And that's, I know something that I've also benefited from. Yes, definitely. Oh my gosh, that's, that is absolutely huge. And also, like, if you go to the Center for Humane Technologies website, they've got a great list of things you can do. Like you can turn your phone on grayscale, which I've done as well, like everything to basically just try to counter these persuasive de- t- design technologies that are created in order to keep you hooked on your phone. So anything you can do to, to fight back, I think can mitigate those negative effects more and then allow you to use the, the positive effects as a tool um, increasingly. Thank you both so much. And just before we wrap up, Carly, would you like to unmute? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been wonderful. And I I really just wanted to say thank you and to say that I, as of tomorrow, am taking a little three-week break from Instagram and Facebook. And this has been a helpful pump up um, for, (laughs) for taking that little pause, which I do every so often. But this has just given me a lot to, to consider as I uh, embark on that adjustment to my screen time. Congrats! (laughs) Yes. Baby steps. Well, thank you, everybody, for being a part of this chat. Thank you so much, Caroline and Adriana, and, of course, Colleen, for hosting us here. I'll hand it back to you. Well, thank you all so much. I am so excited for these monthly Center for Scholars and Storytellers takeover rooms of the Children's Tech and Media. This is every Sunday night at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Annie, I would love for you to tease the next month CSS topic. Yes, thank you so much, Colleen. And thank you all for being here today. This was fantastic. Our May theme is going to be on mental health. Still choosing our fantastic guests, but 
um, I think it's going to be a wonderful conversation about mental health and how that relates to what adolescents are going through. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. This was really interesting. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. I agree. Thanks so much. And, and great to meet and speak with you all. Thank you both. And Annie, the May topic is very relevant after this topic. So yes, uh, it can definitely wait. go hand in hand with this. Thank you all yeah. so much and, and looking forward to the next conversation. That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thanks to our wonderful guests, Dr. Adriana Monago and Caroline Beaton, and our moderator, Sheena Brevig. If you have a minute, rate and review us. And if you have any friends who you think would like the show, share it with them. If you are interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Scholars and Storytellers. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, with special thanks to Jim Olds for creating the intro music, the UCLA Film School, Nira Liebenthal, Annie Myers, and Jeremy Shane. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.